Hi, this is Dr. Karen Horton from Johns Hopkins Medical Institution. This is going to be part two of our discussion of MDCT imaging of the airways. In this part, we'll be discussing the clinical applications. First, we're going to discuss some anatomic variants that are important to recognize. Then we'll go through some cases demonstrating stenosis, cancer, and aluminal lesions. We'll discuss the usefulness of CT bronchoscopy and bronchography for image guidance, foreign body aspiration, TE fistula, stent planning, and follow-up. First, anatomic variants. There's something called a tracheal diverticulum, which is an outpouching of the tracheal wall. It can be single or multiple. It's uncommon, or most of the time it doesn't cause any symptoms, but at autopsy it's actually noted in 1% of patients. So Clearly, it's more common than we think, but we just don't see it that commonly because the patients are asymptomatic. So usually, patients are asymptomatic, but in some patients, secretions can be trapped in the diverticulum then can become infected and cause chronic cough or chronic infection. There are actually two classifications. There's congenital tracheal diverticulum and acquired. The congenital portion is really thought to represent an a aborted little piece of the lung that never formed normally, so an aborted primary lung bud. Usually it arises four to five centimeters below the true vocal cords or just above the carina. It's almost always on the right. And this, because it's a congenital diverticulum, is a true diverticulum, so that means it contains all the normal layers of the tracheal wall. Now, an acquired tracheal diverticulum is most likely the result of increased interluminal pressure within the trachea and it's in most commonly seen in patients with chronic cough such as emphysema patients. And this one can occur anywhere along the trachea. It typically has a wider mouth than the acquired one. And it's lined by respiratory epithelium but it doesn't have all the elements of the wall because basically it's just a diverticulum that has occurred because of the increased interluminal pressure. If the patient is symptomatic, then treatment may be antibiotics or rarely surgery. And again, usually patients are asymptomatic, but secretions can get trapped in there and cause repeated infections. Now, radiologically, it's not that important to tell you to be able to distinguish a congenital from acquired diverticulum, but congenital is usually on the right. So here's an example of a tracheal diverticulum. This is the trachea here, and there's a small outpouching here posteriorly and laterally along the right side. Here you can see in a coronal multiplanar reconstruction, this is the trachea right main stem bronchus, left main stem bronchus, and there is the small tracheal diverticulum off the right side of the trachea above the carina. Here's a volume rendered view in which the lungs and the airway are made uh, translucent and you can see the little diverticulum here off the right. In this image we made the airway and the lungs look white and it's a little bit easier to see the diverticulum off the right side here. Again, it's going to be above the carina towards the right. Another relatively common anatomic variant that we see is something called a tracheal bronchus, and this is a congenital aberrant bronchus, and it occurs along the right side of the trachea above the carina, and it actually supplies the right upper lobe. So the tracheal diverticulum is just a blind-ended sac, but this is actually an aberrant bronchus that is supplying the right upper lobe. So usually it's an incidental finding, but patients can be symptomatic this for the same reason as they can in a tracheal diverticulum, that this bronchus can act as a reservoir for secretions or infection. It has been described with increased incidence in patients with Down syndrome and in patients with tracheal stenosis. 
If a patient has recurrent infections because of a tracheal bronchus, then it may require surgical resection of the bronchus, which then would include resection of the right upper lobe, which it supplies. So here's a coronal image of a patient, and you can see this is the trachea here. In this case, it's a child. You can see there's an extra bronchus coming off, supplying the right upper lobe. This is the carina here, breaking into the left main stem bronchus and right main stem bronchus. In this case, the right main stem bronchus is only going to supply the right middle lobe and the right lower lobe because we have this extra bron bronchus supplying the right upper lobe. Here we have volume rendering views of the airway using different opacities and this nicely shows the trachea coming down and this extra bronchus to the right upper lobe and then the bifurcation to the right middle lobe and the right lower lobe and the left main stem bronchus. Another application for using virtual bronchoscopy is evaluation of patients with known or suspected airway stenosis. Virtual bronchoscopy is being increasingly utilized to detect and grade both benign and malignant airway stenosis and virtual bronchoscopy has already been shown to be accurate in assessing stenosis width and length. In an article by Burke, they correlated stenosis shape and contour between virtual bronchoscopy and conventional bronchoscopy, and this was found to be excellent. So when the stenosis to lumen ratios were compared, the virtual bronchoscopy and conventional bronchoscopy were found to be within 10%. So that was excellent correlation when you measure airway stenosis on CT, compared with the measurements they make during conventional colonoscopy. In this article, 200 bronchial segments in 20 patients were analyzed using four-slice multi-detector CT, and at that point they were using two-millimeter collimation, and they also found that CT was highly accurate in revealing airway stenosis. It was an accuracy of 98% for virtual bronchoscopy. And when you look at the axial, coronal, and sagittal image, so NPR was 96%. So the virtual bronchoscopy just added a little bit more accuracy over the standard multiplanar reconstruction. The virtual bronchoscopy closely correlated with the flexible bronchoscopy. So you could see the R value was 0.91 for grading the stenosis. The virtual bronchoscopy was minimally better than the other CT display methods for quantitating assessment, quantitating the size and the length of the stenosis. Virtual bronchoscopy can be especially valuable for evaluating children with suspected stenosis. So it's less invasive and safer than fiber optic bronchoscopy. So it may be a good first line modality to try to save the child from needing a bronchoscopy if it looks completely normal on a CT scan. Virtual bronchoscopy also has the advantages of visualizing the adjacent structures, such as vascular rings, which can be a cause of strider in children. During bronchoscopy, sometimes they can see pulsations, but they're not gonna be able to see the structures outside the airway. With a CT scan, you can see the lumen of the airway, the wall of the airway, and also the structures outside the airway, including the adjacent vessels. In this study by Hanoff, they studied 12 children with strider and stenosis that was detected on conventional bronchoscopy. So all 12 children underwent MDCT. In this case, it was 16 slice, and also they underwent virtual bronchoscopy. The CT demonstrated the tracheal stenosis in 11 of 12 of the patients. Six patients had vascular compression due to the brachiocephalic trunk, two had a double aortic arch, one had an aberrant right subclavian artery, and two had vascular compression of the left main stem bronchus. In one child, in which no stenosis was detected on CT, 
but there was one seen at fibroptic bronchoscopy, no surgery was performed. And if you look at that case, the CT did show a crossing vessel, which may have caused the tracheal pulsation seen at the conventional bronchoscopy, but the CT did not show a stenosis. Uh, however, the bronchoscopist felt there was a stenosis there, but obviously the child was well enough that he did not have to undergo surgery. Now, there are some limitations of virtual bronchoscopy when you're trying to evaluate possible stenosis. First, there can be retained mucus or blood, and that can cause false positives, especially on the endoluminal views because they're surface rendering. If you correlate the endoluminal views with the multiplanar reconstructions, then most of the time you can kind of tell whether it's blood or mucus versus tumor. Also, remember, virtual bronchoscopy does not allow visualization of the mucosa. During a conventional bronchoscopy, they can actually see the lining of the airway. So if there's an ulceration or very subtle flat tumor, they're going to be able to see it. If there's bleeding, they're going to be able to see it. You cannot see that with a CT scan. The diameter of the airway is dependent on the respiratory cycle. Now, during bronchoscopy, this is going to be a dynamic change in size of the trachea. During a CT scan, we're dependent on when we took the scan. Was it inspiration or expiration? And also, some lesions, such as vocal cord problems, is impossible to see during virtual bronchoscopy. So you definitely would need a, bron need a bronchoscopy for that. Okay, we're going to discuss some cases now showing stenosis. This is a 75-year-old man. He had a history of a chondrosarcoma diagnosed in 1991. And then all of a sudden, many years later, he presents with hemoptysis. The CT scan shows narrowing of the right main stem bronchus. You can see this thickening along the right main stem bronchus causing narrowing. Here on the coronal view, you see this large mass in the mediastinum compressing the right main stem bronchus and its branches. This is related to metastatic chondrosarcoma. Here is that the uh, volume rendering view using kind of a transparency and you can see that the branches of the right pulmonary artery I'm sorry the right main stem bronchus are very narrow due to the infiltration of tumor around the bronchi here on the right another patient 77 year old female with a history of Wagner's granulomatosis presented with cough and fever her CT scan shows abnormal thickening along the left main stem bronchus. You can see this abnormal tumor, which is narrowing the left main stem bronchus and actually causing atelectasis of the left upper lobe. And here you can see that there's only minimal air getting through the left main stem bronchus and that there's either this thickening, which is basically granulation tissue and blood obstructing the left upper lobe bronchus. Our next patient is a four-and-a-half-year-old man, uh, male who underwent aortopexy. That's surgery, kind of changing the position of the aorta because this was compressing the left main stem bronchus. But even after surgery, the child had a persistent cough. When you look at the CT scan, you can see the left main stem bronchus is being pinched here. This is the left atrium, the left pulmonary veins coming back, and you can see that it's really a tight squeeze there. I think this is actually better appreciated when you do your volume rendering with the translucency here, and you can see this narrowing of the left main stem bronchus. So even though the patient went to surgery, there was persistent stenosis of the left main stem bronchus. These are the endoluminal views, and you can see this is the right bronchus here. Remember, on endoluminal views, we're looking from the head down, so the right side of the patient's going to be on this side, and the left side's going to be on that side. So the right main stem bronchus looks normal, the left main stem bronchus is narrowed. This is a patient with suspected tracheal stenosis, and you can see that there's a tight 
stenosis here of the trachea. You can see both on the transparent views and the opaque views. Also on a sagittal view, you can see how tight the stenosis here in the endoluminal fly-through view. Again, you can see how markedly narrow the trachea is at that level. CT bronchography is also used in patients with bronchogenic carcinoma. And we know that CT is currently the primary imaging modality to detect lung cancer, to stage it, and to follow it up. Radiologists usually rely solely on the axial images in this patient population. But investigators have begun to study the potential value of doing CT bronchography and virtual bronchoscopy for this clinical application in patients with lung cancer involving the airway. In this article, by Finkelstein, 32 consecutive patients with malignant thoracic tumors and suspected tracheobronchial lesions were studied. The virtual bronchoscopy and the results of the conventional bronchoscopy were compared in 20 of the 32 patients. The virtual bronchoscopy detected all of the obstructive lesions, five of six of the endobronchial lesions, but none of the mucosal lesions. So it, it's easy to see that the mucosal lesions we're not going to be able to see, but they found all the obstructive lesions and most of the endobronchial lesions. The sensitivity for virtual bronchoscopy for all the abnormalities was then calculated to be 82% with a specificity of 100%. Also in that article, CT and virtual bronchoscopy was shown to have a sensitivity of 100% for the obstructive lesions, but not so great for mucosal lesions, and they found most of the endoluminal lesions. The overall sensitivity was 83%. An advantage of using virtual bronchoscopy over fiber optic bronchoscopy is the ability to image beyond the site of obstruction. So if there's a tumor obstructing a bronchus, the endoscopist won't be able to get past that, but the CT scan can visualize past that. So for example, in that study that I reviewed, the virtual bronchoscopy was able to identify peripheral obstructive lesions in five patients which were beyond the size limitation of the scope. So you can see beyond an obstructing lesion. Now, I don't think that virtual bronchoscopy and CT bronchography is going to replace bronchoscopy at all, especially in patients in which there's a high chance of having a lung cancer because you can't see the mucosa. But in patients with diagnosed lung cancer that may be involving the airway, the CT scan, since they're going to be getting a CT scan anyway, can be used also to evaluate airway involvement. Here's a patient with a lung cancer. You can see in the right hilum, extending into the mediastinum and surrounding the bronchus. This is the right main stem bronchus, right upper lobe bronchus, bronchus intermedius, and here you can see a tumor extending inside. On our endoluminal view, here you can see the tumor pushing into the airway. We have another patient with lung cancer, extensive tumor involvement of the hilum, the mediastinum. You can see that the tumor is encasing the left main pulmonary artery and growing along the mediastinum. Also, in the right side of the trachea, you can see that there's tumor extension along the right wall. The right-hand image is the transparent image from volume rendering in which the air in the lungs is highlighted and the air in the trachea is highlighted. And here along the right side, you see this filling defect, which is the tumor. This is the endoluminal view, and you can see the tumor here pushing inside the trachea. Now, endoluminal lesions uh, can be subtle on CT scan unless you're specifically looking for them. Since virtual bronchoscopy can create both a global view of the airways as well as the endoluminal lesions, it has the potential of identifying most of these lesions. The literature varies in its usefulness for this indication. In this article by LaCase, 
163 patients were evaluated, 63 had endobronchial lesions, and the sensitivity and specificity for virtual bronchoscopy detecting these lesions was 68% and 90% respectively. Three millimeter slices were used in that study and reconstructed every 1.5 millimeters, and they found only 16 of 24 lobar lesions and 11 of 34 segmental lesions. Of course, those were relatively thick slices, three millimeters. In a different article by Finkelstein, there was 1.25 millimeter slices, and they found five of six of the endoluminal lesions. So it's very likely that our ability now that we can perform submillimeter collimation will improve our spatial resolution even more and could improve our ability to detect these endoluminal lesions, especially um, centrally. But again, it's unlikely that CT will completely replace conventional bronchoscopy for this indication, especially if patients have a suspected malignancy. Because in those patients, let's say somebody presenting with hemoptysis who has a negative CT scan, they're definitely going to need bronchoscopy because we cannot detect those flat lesions in the airway. Here's an example of an endoluminal lesion. This is a patient with tracheal papillomas or papillomatosis. And on the axial image, there's a very subtle papilloma at the carina. If you look on the transparent volume rendering views, it's much easier to see. You can see the polyp here just at the bifurcation of the carina, and here's the endoluminal view. You can see the polyp right there. Here's another patient. This patient had hemoptysis, and you can see that there's a tracheal mass here. On the sagittal image, it's easier to see it's anterior in the trachea. On the coronal image, you can see it's right up here. The endoluminal views are actually the most dramatic, where you see this very lobulated mass along the wall of the trachea. As we discussed earlier, form body aspiration is a common and serious cause of respiratory difficulties in young children. And in many cases of form body aspiration, it may not be recognized initially, and the child may be incorrectly diagnosed as having asthma or bronchiolitis or some other sort of respiratory infection. In a study by Applegate, it showed that the diagnosis of foreign body aspiration is only made in about 60% of cases within the first 24 hours. So obviously we have to be more clinically aware of this condition. Proper recognition of the foreign body is essential because delayed diagnosis can lead to wheezing, infection, or serious airway obstruction. In suspected cases of foreign body aspiration, typically a plain film is ordered initially, and that can be helpful especially with metallic foreign bodies, but it can be normal in up to 30% of patients, especially if it's plastic or it's not metal. The plain film can also sometimes show uh, some secondary findings, so air trapping and things like that, but in most cases, if you can't find it on a plain film, you definitely want to go to CT. This was a nice article by Applegate in which they performed low-dose CT to visualize plastic toys in the airway of cadavers, and they had a sensitivity and specificity of almost 90%. So this was actually Legos that they placed in cadavers and tried to see if they could actually find it. And sometimes it can be challenging, especially if it's out in the segmental or subsegmental bronchi. In this other article using low-dose technique, virtual bronchoscopy and conventional bronchoscopy in 23 patients with suspected foreign body aspiration, 15 patients had CT and conventional bronchoscopy in which they found the foreign object. So in 15 patients, both CT and the bronchoscopy identified the foreign body. CT also has the advantage of showing the secondary signs. So even if you can't see the foreign body, you may be able to direct the bronchoscopist which bronchi to go depending on where you see the, the hyperinflation and the air trapping. 21 consecutive patients with suspected foreign body and 
in this case, they showed no added benefit of the virtual bronchoscopy over the standard axial images and MPRs. So in that article, they felt that even just looking at the axial and MPRs was enough, that you ne didn't necessarily have to do the fly-through views. Another potential application for virtual bronchoscopy is to help direct the aspiration or transbronchial aspiration and biopsy of mediastinal and hilar nodes and masses. Now at this point, the bronchoscopist usually uses the standard axial images of a CT when they're doing these biopsies, and the success rate for these biopsies is really only 50% for nodes and tumors, which they can't see. So when they know that there's nodes around the bronchus, they can't actually see them when they're in the airway, and they're kind of guessing based on the CT where to perform the biopsy. So they're only successful in about 50% of cases. McAdams reported great success if they use virtual bronchoscopy as a guide for the transbronchial needle aspiration during the bronchoscopy. And the sensitivity for malignancy on a per-node basis was 88%, which was much higher than reported for doing non-CT-guided aspirations and biopsies. And that author attributed his success to the ability to better correlate the node location and the angle of the needle approach using virtual bronchoscopy instead of the standard images. So the bronchoscopists felt that they could um, have a better technique and a better angle when they were looking at the virtual bronchoscopy rather than just the axial images. And also the authors felt that the virtual bronchoscopy images gave them greater confidence to biopsy smaller nodes in nodes in difficult locations. So a bronchoscopist may in the past have been reluctant to biopsy a very small node or a node in a difficult location based on the axial images alone. But having the virtual bronchoscopy and the multiplanar reconstructions uh, gave them greater confidence and allowed them to try to biopsy these more difficult lesions. Also, the virtual bronchoscopy resulted in decreased procedure time. Virtual bronchoscopy can also help guide biopsies of the peripheral lesions. So in this article, virtual bronchoscopy could be used to guide the transbronchial biopsy using the ultra-thin bronchoscope. So small peripheral lesions were successfully biopsied with this technique. So the bronchoscopist could biopsy things more peripherally. Virtual bronchoscopy and CT bronchography is excellent for evaluation of patients with stents. We have... Um, accurate airway mapping and measurement of the size of the airway for stent planning and also follow-up after stent placement to confirm the patency, diagnose stenosis, and to detect migration. In this article by Ferretti, the author demonstrated the usefulness of CT and virtual bronchoscopy as a method to evaluate stent. So he compared the CT and virtual bronchoscopy with the regular bronchoscopy, and the CT demonstrated all but two significant abnormality. The two missed cases were both related to granulometer formation at the origin of the stent. So the very edges of the stent may be difficult. Here's an example of a patient with a stent in the right main stent bronchus. Here's the coronal multiplanar reconstruction. Here's the axial image clearly demonstrating the stent in the right main stent bronchus. On the volume rendered view of the stent, you can see the stent in the right main stem bronchus here, and here's the trachea and the left main stem bronchus. This next patient had a tracheal stent as well as a stent involving both main stem bronchus. And here's the opaque view. You can see the rings of the stent, and here are the two main stem bronchi stent. And now I've changed the volume rendering to highlight the dense metallic portions of the stent, and now you're just viewing the stent. So this is a stent that's designed to be very similar to the trachea with rings anteriorly and just um, plastic posteriorly, which you don't see in this view. And here are the two main stem bronchi limbs. Here's another patient with a stent that was supposed to be in the left main stem bronchus, but you can clearly see that it's extending into the trachea at the carina. 
And if we look at the endoluminal views, you can see the teeth of the stent poking right through from the left main stem bronchus into the carina and the, the lower portion of the trachea. Tracheoesophageal fistula is also a potential application for using CT bronchography. It can be used in patients with esophageal atresia in which there's a high incidence of associated tracheoesophageal fistula. In an article by Lamb, the author successfully used 3D CT and virtual bronchoscopy to locate the site of the fistula and to measure the gap between the upper and lower portion of the esophagus, which is important to do before surgery. And this is a patient who had esophageal cancer and had involvement of the airway requiring a stent in both the esophagus and in the trachea. And the patient had persistent infections and we can see that there's a persistent fistula between the trachea and the esophagus despite the presence of stents in both the airway and esophagus. Here's the same patient and I'm just highlighting the air-filled structures here in a sagittal view and you can see the communication between the esophagus and the trachea and there's the fistula right there. Trauma is another potential application in which you could use virtual bronchoscopy and 3D CT to use to directly image the airway in patients who are hemodynamically stable. And this was an article in which the CT was used to depict a defect or depression in the wall at the site of the injury that was diagnosed on bronchoscopy. And in most cases, the CT was able to detect the site and the size of the injury and was comparable to the fibroactive bronchoscopy. But again, these have to be in stable patients. There's been a, just a couple articles suggesting that this may be beneficial in burn patients, that virtual bronchoscopy could play a role in identifying inhalation injuries in burn patients with suspected airway involvement, and in that case, maybe safer than doing a conventional bronchoscopy. In this article by Gore, 10 burn patients with clinical suspicion of inhalation injury underwent CT, and in eight of these, the diagnosis was confirmed on the virtual bronchoscopy and the fibroactic bronchoscopy. So how do we currently utilize this technique? First, we use it for stent planning and follow-up. We use it to evaluate suspected airway stenosis in patients with Strider. We use it in patients with suspected foreign body aspiration to evaluate for possible anatomic variants causing symptoms. And also bronchoscopy imaging can be used to guide biopsies. So in conclusion, although 3D CT and virtual bronchoscopy really has been used for almost 10 years, it's only now gaining enthusiasm in both the radiologic community and the pulmonary community because of advancements in our CT scanners allowing submillimeter collimation and also improvements in our software, both multiplanar reconstruction software and fly-through software. And it's clear that in certain circumstances, it can be a useful adjunct to the standard CT axial scans in patients with suspected airway pathology. Thank you.